morning, everyone. And uh, welcome to the 245th year, first day and first month since the beginning of this narrative that we live in, also known as July 4th for shorthand. It's the birthday of our nation and this uh, red, white, and blue banner that you see behind me. But actually, that last part wasn't correct. Raise your hand if you know uh, the right answer and why that wasn't wrong. Any ideas? Okay, wait, hold on. Nope. If your answer is that Betsy Ross designed the flag in 1777 and not 1776, that's incorrect, too. Was that the answer? Thanks for playing the game. We have a lovely parting gift for you. Rob, we'll see you at the door. And send you home with a nice washer and dryer. See, the correct answer is that this uh, behind me is uh, not actually a flag at all, but it's an abstract painting within a familiar composition of stars and stripes. Technically, it's three paintings by Jasper Johns, placed one in front of the other and named three flags aptly. The Whitney Museum said that he realized that the American flag was often seen and not looked at, not examined. And if you lean close to this encaustic triplicate, you can see through the transparent stars and stripes pattern to the details painted behind it. This and other flag paintings began after Johns had a dream that he was painting a flag. So he woke up one morning and he painted one. And in a way, you could narrate his life and times by discussing three different flags from the story of America. So long ago, Jasper Johns found himself in New York City under the flapping American flag of a post-war United States. And as the national symbol was hoisted at military bases across the world in the Cold War's beginning, he found his own star rising in the art world. He befriended future creative luminaries and was roommates with the fellow painter Robert Rauschenberg. And on a visit to Rauschenberg's painting studio, a gallery owner first found Jasper Johns in his unusual paintings. And they were unusual because it looked forward to pop art. At the same time, using a method that looked backward to an ancient art form. And this ancient art form of encaustic painting used pigment suspended in wax. And in this hot wax, it ensured that each brush stroke cooled at a different time and dried to different hues. And the wax's translucency revealed a hidden layer of newspaper text behind the uh, symbolic painted image and the canvas. And Jasper communicated contemporary symbols using an ancient means. But that wasn't the beginning of his narrative that he was living in. In most interviews, Jasper Johns had a soft-spoken uh, mid-Atlantic accent. Now, he isn't from the Atlantic seaboard. And mind you, the uh, mid-Atlantic accent isn't from the eastern seaboard either. It's, a, it's an adopted manner of enunciating your words to combine the best of the American accent of English with the British accent of English. It's, it's, <laughs> I can't do that. But actually, if you, if you, um, 
if you listen back to old Hollywood radio stars or, or silver screen stars, it's the reason why uh, Sidney Poitier and Katherine Hepburn, why they don't sound like regular human beings. <laughs> so, so we don't use that as much anymore. So by his first show, Jasper had adopted a more metropolitan identity than his origin. It had been at least 27 years, 19 days, and seven months since Jasper was born in Georgia, a state that currently bore the Confederate flag in its own flag. Now, mind you, this was not the flag that Jasper was born under, nor was it the flag at any other time since the Civil War. But after his departure to, uh, how should we say, Yankeedom, reactionary politics had increased to such a point that in 1956, nearly a century after the war between the North and the South, Georgia adopted the red, white, and blue of the rebel flag. Yet as a son of the South, Jasper had become accustomed to the notions of the North. Next, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, a noted, noted uh, Yankee institution you may have heard of before, suggests that uh, the flag in Johns's work is a familial reference. And due to his ancestor and namesake, Sergeant William Jasper raising that flag during the Revolutionary War. Now the opposing side of that war hoisted their own red, white, and blue banner. And it was the predecessor of the current British Union Jack flag that you see. And it symbolized the United Kingdoms then of England and Scotland in the throne of the British monarch. So with the image we uh, see that it's called the uh, King's Colors. We see that there is a white X-shaped St. Andrew's cross and blue background of the Scottish overlaid with the red St. George's cross of the English. And this image of conflicting religious symbols highlighted the irony of a war between English-speaking colonialists and the English-speaking colonies, even though they were branches of the same nationality and same religious identity. The Americans charged waving their origin story in 13 stars and stripes, while the British, their, their intersecting crosses bore the narrative of Christendom. So it was 1958 in the, you know, the conventional way of numbering years that you might be familiar with, and Jasper hung an image of a flag in front of a flag in front of another flag. He rose to prominence exploring powerful symbols and symbols of power. And you know, the greatest symbol of power is time itself, because people measure time in increments of power. Seeing an American flag cues your mind to the date of July 4, 1776, because that's when the king's colors gave way to old glory, and the power here went from the British crown to the American Congress. We repeat Churchill's maxim of history is written by the victors because history is just the narrative we tell about time. Who won the power and how did they use it? In today's scripture, we see this idea unfurled in the book of Ezekiel. It opens with the line, in the 30th year, on the fifth day, of the fourth month, I was with the exiles at the Chibar River, 
when the heavens opened and I saw visions of God. Then it goes on to clarify that it was the fifth day of the month in the fifth year after King Jehoiakim's deportation. So the narrator starts measuring time in the loss and gain of power as it transferred from Jewish kings to Babylonian emperors. And by the second chapter, the voice of the narrator gives way to the voice of God. The Lord showed Ezekiel how time is to be properly measured. And by leaning closer in, the prophet saw through the images and the national symbols as if they were translucent. He observed the text behind them and discovered the multi-layered structure that supported them. It empowered Ezekiel to appreciate that which heretofore had been seen and not looked at, not examined. God redefined the narrative that Ezekiel was living in. And if I could have a moment of your time this morning, I'd like to challenge you to do the same. So let's go through the scripture. Ezekiel found himself in the Gentile city of Tel Aviv in the period known as the uh, Babylonian captivity because the Babylonian victors kidnapped much of the Israeli or the Israelite populace. He was in a foreign land without power. And unlike a later songwriting American captive, the night gave proof that his flag was not there. But as his national symbols were lowered by the occupying military, the God of his ancestors arose in exile to remind him of his calling in the world. The creator of the heavenly luminaries befriended him, taking up residence beside him in a series of visions. The God who handmade humanity handed this man insight into the spirit's work and voice. The Lord retold the prophet the story of time itself. And then the reader is invited, that's us, to see through national symbols to the ancient narrative texts behind him. So calling out from his glory, the Lord said to Ezekiel, human one, stand on your feet and I'll speak to you. Now, if the human one uh, line seems a little familiar, that's because I'm using the contemporary English Bible or the CEB version that we read here in church. In the King James Version or the KJV, which was standard in 1776, it says son of man instead of human one. Now, the KGV was in the first English Bible, and most translations aim to convey the uh, emphasis of the original languages. So in that Hebrew original of Ezekiel, instead of human one or son of man, it says ben Adam. Ben meaning son, and Adam meaning both human and the personal name for the first human, Adam. Next, the prophet recalled a wind came to me and stood me on my feet. The word in the CEB translated here for wind conveys the imagery of the transparent force that moves things around. And perhaps it was a burst of air that propelled the prophet forward. However, the KJV, the King James Version, chose the word spirit. Now, granted, this word choice is a toss-up because uh, the word 
in Hebrew is ruach, which means both wind and spirit. Now, you might remember that in the Greek New Testament, there is one word also for wind and spirit, and that one is pneuma. So Jesus can wax poetic and say things like, The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst tell whether it cometh or whether it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. And the whole time, he's just repeating the word pneuma back and forth interchangeably. A little play on words there. But in the religion of the invisible God that we practice, we do believe that the Spirit is the transparent force that moves things around. Indeed, she was the one which stood Adam on his feet and animated his spirit with the breath of life. Next, Ezekiel testifies, I heard someone addressing me. Now you know by now that the CEB translates it as heard. But did you know that the KGV also translates as heard? But finally, we got a little break from the monotony. We have some agreement here. It's a good little little interlude there. But finally, they agree because the word in the Hebrew is Shema. And the word Shema imagines the same voice that the universe heard when God said, let us make Adam in our image. And the Ruach breathed the breath of life into him and stood him on his feet. The text tells us that the Lord called Ezekiel to stand in the wind as a symbol for his kingdom. Or at least that's my conclusion based on the CEB and the KJV. You see, unity and uniformity were the original intention of the uh, KJV. The same King James of the 1600s commissioned both the King James Version Bible and the King's Colors flag. And they were to unify notions of God and country in English-speaking lands. In the Anglican churches of 1776, whether they were in London or in Boston in the New World, they shared one authorized Bible. But even though they were branches of the same nationality and religious identity, the British and Americans could not see the text of the prophet through the opacity of their flags. They prayed to the same God for victory in battle against his other children. Thirteen years after justifying the murder of their fellow Christians, the American church chose to break off into their own communion, the Episcopal Church. The winds of change were at their back, but the spirit of reconciliation was not in their hearts. Sorry if that ruined somebody's July 4th barbecue that you're having after church. Let's go back to scripture. The 245th year, first day and first month of the narrative of Ezekiel that he found himself in and spoke of was akin to the four score and seven years that in a later American president referenced. Both were scenes painted with the blood of rebellion. As Lincoln waxed eloquently concerning the conflict between the southern rebels and the north, Ezekiel's background was inversely birthed by the rebellion of the Israelite north. Years prior, the nation split into two, Judah in the south and Israel in the north, and it left both halves prey to enemies. Yet even as they were 
pillage for Babylonian prizes. Those left behind maintained their religious and ancestral traditions of rebellion. And throughout the book, the years are marked with exposés of religious disobedience and corruption. The structure of the prophecies reveal images of national rebellion as the walls of the temple are made transparent to the prophet's eyes. And behind every symbolic vision of Israel's sin is the image of another one that supported it. Ezekiel's calling confronted the structural rebellion of these hardened descendants. Well, what does the scripture say? Once again, the Lord declared to Ezekiel, human one, I'm sending you to the Israelites. Where the CEB says human one, and Israelites, of course, the KJV says son of man and children of Israel. But if we go back to the Hebrew, the former is Ben Adam, and the latter is Ben Yisrael, or Israel. And in using Ben, it parallels two sons. Have you ever noticed that the uh, Old Testament has a literary trope of two sons pitted against each other? It's a type of story that's repeated often. Even if you go to Genesis, you'll notice that the structure seems to be formed by the repetitive image of two conflicting sons. Likewise, God here uses the comparison of the son of man and the son of Israel to teach Ezekiel about the repetitive structure of the Israelites' systematic sin. The Lord lamented that they were, quote, a traitorous and rebellious people. They and their ancestors have been rebelling against me even to this very day. And in using traitorous, rebellious, and rebelling, God conveyed the idea of being a rebel in three ways. It was an image in front of an image in front of another image. Their repetitive behavior was not just a coincidence, but a conscious continuation of their ancestral rebel tradition. It was an intentional and strategic structure in God's point of view. The Israelites were raising these signs of rebellion as their national banner. Then God commissioned the listening prophet by saying, I'm sending you to their hard-hearted and hard-headed descendants. The Israelites were hard-hearted like their ancestor Adam, choosing to disobey the divine. They were stubborn like their forefather, Jacob, wrestling with God. God's children were hard-hearted like the multitudes murmuring against Moses in the desert. Yet in every case of disobedience, the Lord still whispered his words of mercy on the wind. He answered their rebel flags with a white flag. When he stood at Gettysburg, Lincoln retold the American narrative laced with religious language. He was not particularly religious himself, but he grew up in a Baptist household. And prior developments in the Baptist church could be seen as a precursor to the Civil War itself. And they were a congregationally driven movement, and they only met every three years to coordinate denominationally on missionary affairs and sending people abroad in what's called the Triennial Convention. And that was until 1845, 20 years or so before the end of the Civil War, when the Southern churches seceded from the denomination due to their support of slavery. 
That was when the Southern Baptist Convention, America's largest Protestant denomination, was founded in Jasper Johns's hometown of Augusta, Georgia. And even though they were branches of the same nationality and religious identity, they rebelliously pursued power like their ancestors. You thought it was just the Episcopalians. Thank you, Bob. <laughs> now, considering the history of regional divisions and separatism, why would the Jerusalem leadership heed the words of Ezekiel, an expatriate prophet living in the diaspora? Now, scripture says that he was a Levite, making him able to be a priest, but the Talmud adds that Ezekiel was also possibly one of Joshua's descendants and therefore a tribesman of Ephraim in the rebellious north. And embedded in Ezekiel's message was the image of conflicting religious symbols. Even though they were branches of the same nationality and religious identity. And after the fall of the house of David, the star of David seems to be separated into two opposing triangles pointing to different paths. Right in the middle stood Ezekiel as the spokesman for the God of Israel, bracketed between them like a parenthesis. Ezekiel provided the parenthetical commentary of God as the author. The Lord spoke insight into the national narrative that had been seen and not looked at, not examined. The Almighty continued commissioning Ezekiel, saying, You will say unto them, The Lord proclaims. And in prefacing his message as a prophet with that divine attribution, you know, the old, Thus saith the Lord. Ezekiel both identified his role to listeners and identified himself within a practice. You see, in the Hebrew tradition, starting with Moses, prophets were understood not only as seers, but primarily as spokespeople. Their narratives featured parallel scenes of being told words by God and then later repeating them to the audience. And as a spokesman, Ezekiel was a hearer who led others to listen to the divine. And God continued to instruct, saying, whether they listen or whether they refuse, since they are a household of rebels. In discussing the two possible responses, the Lord makes an interesting aside that uh, sort of is like a parenthetical notice to the reader in that uh, since they are a household of rebels, God here is defining the nature of a rebel as one who refuses to listen. So this invisible God who communed with Adam by his voice, which necessitates a faithful listener, defines a start of rebellion as refusing to listen. Whether it be the ancestors or the descendants, a rebel leaves God's spokesman unheard, not considered, leaving the symbol seen and not looked at, not examined. The Lord promised that they will know that a prophet has been among them, and as spokesmen, prophets symbolically represented the invisible God. They were Many ways to know a prophet because half the job was about announcing yourself and what your uh, profession was. It wasn't a very subtle job to have. But before the prophets even opened their mouths, you could tell them apart visually. 
it says that Moses concealed his uh, shining face with a veil. Elijah was draped in a mantle that he passed down to Elisha. John the Baptist was cloaked in camel's hair. But appearances, this shows that one intends to be seen as a prophet. The confirmation that one is a true prophet is based on what they said. So let's bring this thing on home. The clash of religious figures in deciphering between a true and a false prophet's message, it seems confusing, doesn't it? It's like the intersecting crosses of the king's colors flag. It's hard to distinguish one from the other. And we've seen through the revolutionary and civil wars how the American church used governmental power to execute punishment. Americans inherited this rebellious structure from the British, but the British didn't invent it. The British learned it from their own colonizers, the Romans. And Christianized Rome passed this gene to all the nations that made up Christendom. We see its roots shortly after Emperor Constantine legalized Christianity, and then he served as the arbitrator in a theological dispute between Nicene Christians and Arian Christians. So the winner of that argument later went on to define official Catholicism, but also they used the state to persecute and or kill their theological enemies, the losers. Even though they were branches of the same nationality, and religious identity, and went back and forth depending on who the emperor was. Now, clarification, I believe in the Nicene's Creed, just like I back the cause of the abolitionists, just like I agree with the separation of church and state. But simultaneously, I believe that understanding the narrative that we've been born into, I think that it can help us assess our current situation. For all too often, Christianity's true message is seen and not looked at, not examined, while the methods of Christendom, they're affirmed. And now I understand why I'm not invited to anybody's barbecue later on. So if you remember our old friend Jasper Johns, still alive today, now he's 91 years old, and he has a summer home in St. Martin, or St. Martin, depends how you pronounce it, because it's a Caribbean island that's divided partially under the uh, Dutch and French flags, right down the middle. He's wealthy enough to not need a roommate anymore. But Robert Rauschenberg was actually never his roommate to save money, but because they were dating. Raise your hand if you caught that roommate earlier was a code word. And I bring this up because if you were raised a Bible-believing, King James-reading Baptist from the Bible Belt like myself, then hearing that would have raised all sorts of red flags from your rearing. And that's because this is the divisive issue right now in the American church today. It's the culture war where an army with, uh, armed with American flags and Christian crosses go to battle against the other side, armed with the same. And just like the past issues of church independence, slavery, and the divinity of Christ, the issue of how we treat our LGBTQ members is dividing denominations. And increasingly, we are called to address the powerful issues of our time. So who will win the power? And what will they do with it? 
It is here that we must remember that we measure time by the life of Jesus. History may be written by the winners, but time has been transformed by the Messiah. We believe that 2,000 years ago, the image of the invisible God stepped into history and exerted the power of his compassion. God doesn't measure time by power, but by mercy. But all too often, I've found that Christians wanting to take back our country for God was a code word for taking back power to punish our perceived enemies. You see, I was raised behind the banner of a heteronormative, patriarchal Christianity that painted the picture of adherence to uniformity as fidelity to scripture. But then I leaned in and I saw through the facade of the faith and I looked at the biblical text behind it and I found the Messiah that exerted mercy on his theological enemies. Jesus chose Mercy over power. And I was raised saluting a symbolic cultural union of Judeo-Christian values that seemed to focus the most on stamping out dissent. But then I looked behind it and I saw that there was a flag behind a flag, a structure that supported it, that ended up just being the rebellious pursuit of power, of punishment. And I found that Christ was in dialogue with both scripture and his disciples. Jesus chose mercy over power. I was raised to recognize the flag of authority and not to question its narrative. But then I studied the scriptures that I had seen and not looked at, not examined. And I found that it said in Hebrews, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spoke in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these days spoken by his son. Jesus chose mercy over power. You see, I saw past the pictures of the past and I looked unto Jesus the author and finisher of our faith. And I recognize Jesus not only as the primary spokesman for God, word, but the actual word of God incarnate. And that made me pay attention to the methods and manner of Jesus in addition to his message. And I focus less on playing God with my judgment and more on imitating Christ in my mercy. I cared less for the power to punish perceived sinners and more for leaning in to listen in love. And when I leaned in, I looked past my preconceived prejudices and I saw the image of God in the overlooked. I found that when I changed my focus, God changed my mind. I found gay people who are the same nationality and religion as me. And if we collectively as God's kingdom paint a different picture for the nation to see, we can change the narrative 
that we live in. But it will only happen when we wave the flag of surrender to mercy.